Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Ready or not. (laughs) Welcome to week two of a series on the book of James that we're calling Everyday Faith. Uh, In the book, The Magician's Nephew by C.S. Lewis, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, there's a character named Uncle Andrew. Now, Andrew is actually the magician referenced in the title of the book. And when we're first introduced to Andrew, he's presented as an odd and idiosyncratic, but relatively harmless character. As the story moves on, however, we realize that this old man is a bit more sinister than he first appeared. He has what he believes to be magic rings uh, that can transport you to other worlds, but he's too afraid to try the rings himself. So when his nephew Diggory and his friend Polly end up by accident in his attic room, he figures out a way to get the children to try the rings. And this is actually what kickstarts the whole story. We hear all about Diggory and Polly's adventures in other worlds uh, because the rings did in fact work. Towards the end of the story though, Andrew's true nature is revealed. He had tricked the kids into trying the rings, unwilling to put himself at risk to satisfy his own curiosity. So while trying to justify his actions, he explains that while it might have been wrong for someone else to do what he did, it wasn't wrong for him because he lives by a different set of rules. He says this, quote, men like me, who possess hidden wisdom, are freed from common rules, just as we are cut off from common pleasures. Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. End quote. Now, by the conclusion of the story, Uncle Andrew has been, is humbled and set in his place. But the keen moral insight of C.S. Lewis is clear. The moment that one thinks that an action that would be wrong for others is okay for them, they have puffed themselves up with pride and are headed for disaster. This keen moral insight or this moral lesson from the magician's nephew is essentially what James is talking to us in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. And here's what it says, reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. For whoever speaks evil against another or judges another speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who then are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, in these couple of verses, James speaks about the dangers of how we speak to and about one another. 
And so his encouragement is for us to not speak evil against one another. And here, James is speaking to Christians about their interactions with other Christians. So he says, don't speak evil against one another and don't pass judgment against one another. Now, speaking evil and passing judgment can, of course, come in all kinds of different forms. But when we speak evil or pass judgment against one another, James's argument is that we become a judge of the law rather than subject to the law. Or we become like Uncle Andrew in the Chronicles because we see ourselves as living above the law as though we lived according to a different set of rules. You might think of it this way, when we speak ill of others or pass judgment on others, we do so from a sort of higher moral ground. For James, this makes no sense at all. And so the wisdom that he wants to share with us is that for those who call themselves Christians, we are to all find ourselves as servants to God or servants under God. As I was thinking about this passage and the Uncle Andrew syndrome uh, that is so prevalent in the church, my mind was brought to how we have really lost the ability to respectfully converse on the issues of our day. Uh, it, it seems that we've gotten to a place where Christians see the world in black and white categories. So we stand on a moral high ground and say, how could they think that? Or how could they see it that way? But if we hear James's words anew this morning, I think we'll begin to see these words as an invitation to find a way back to proper discourse. We must learn to wrestle and think through issues that we face as the body of Christ. Too often, however, we speak against one another from a supposed moral high ground, simply mirroring the divide that is so prevalent in our culture. I've recently discovered a podcast that helps me to understand and gives language for what proper discourse actually sounds like or looks like. Uh, the podcast is called Un The Unbelievable Podcast. It's published by Premier Christian Radio out of the UK. And in this podcast, uh, two guests and a host are invited to uh, in discuss a particular topic. The debate then uh, is sometimes between two Christians, but more often is between a Christian and an atheist or someone from another faith. And then they talk about, ask questions and wrestle with this topic together. And I have found it really helpful to listen to mostly honorable discourse about a topic as a way of seeing and hearing what discourse can look like. Now, it's important to understand that this call to not speak ill of one another or judge others, this is not an invitation to see the world in the same way or think the same ways. It's not saying that we can't disagree about topics, even important topics. Nor is the wisdom of James telling us not to exercise good judgment. Isn't it true that sometimes when we 
hear the words don't judge, we often think that we are to let go of good judgment in the world. This is not James's wisdom. The word that we need to hear and what James wants to share in this passage, I believe, is that we must learn to have humility in our discourse once again. To not speak evil against one another, to not judge one another, is to simply approach our brothers and sisters in the faith with a sense of humility. And this must happen from both sides or it simply isn't possible to capture honorable discourse. Even as I say this, I recognize how difficult it is. In fact, throughout the letter, James writes, in fact, throughout the letter that James has written, he makes it clear that the very actions that he's calling us to avoid or the actions that he's inviting us into require the work of God in us. And this is no different. Now, this call in chapter 4 actually ties into James's theme of the power of our words. And it's a theme that he unpacks most fully in chapter 3, the first 12 verses. So I want to read those to you now. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. Now, if we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, whenever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species. But no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord and Father, and with it, we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not be so. For does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may have noticed there is so much going on in this passage. So what I want to focus on this morning is this fascinating connection between our speech and creation. And keeping in mind all that we've talked about from chapter 4 and how this ties in then to the wisdom that James wants to share related to our words in chapter 3. Did you notice when I read the passage from chapter 3, all the imagery from Genesis that was present? The first image from Genesis comes when he reminds us that humans are made in the likeness of God. 
This, of course, calls to mind Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where we are told that humanity is created in the image of God. Given this reality, James says, it is not right to bless God and then curse, slander, or revile people. To do so is to bless and to curse God at the same time and out of the same mouth. The second image from Genesis comes in verse 7 when he says that every species of bird, uh, beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by humans. Now this comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, where Adam is given the job of naming the animals. Now James uses the word tame here, but the claim Uh, is not that all animals are to be domesticated. Uh, Rather, taming refers to the naming of the animals. Uh, In the ancient world, just as in ours, if you named something, then you had authority over it. Taming, then, is a way of talking about authority. But, he says, despite naming the animals of creation, we are unable to tame our own tongue. And so we have these two images from Genesis. But what, does it, what is it that James wants us to capture from these images? I think the connection is this. The first gift that was distinctive to humans is the gift of language to name the animals. Therefore, through our speech, we have the opportunity to continue God's creative work in the world or to frustrate it. Let me say that again. The first distinctive gift given to humanity is the gift of language used to have authority to name the animals as an extension of God's creative work. The implication, the application for us is that by our words, we have the power to either cooperate with God's ongoing creative work in the world or to frustrate that work. And that kind of power is held in our own tongues, through the words that we say. You could understand it this way. Our words have the capacity to create worlds in which we and our neighbors must live. In much of the same way that God spoke creation into being, so our words, my words, your words have, the, have creative power in the world. And this is why James uses such big, even cosmic language to describe the potential peril of our words. You notice that James is just laying on all kinds of warning using this big cosmic language. And it's because our words have so much power. He says our tongue is full of deadly poison. It's a fire. He even goes so far as to say that the tongue has been set on fire by hell itself. Now, you may think, This all sounds really dramatic. But take a moment, step back, and look at the current moment we are in. 
and discern the part that words and language have played in creating such division. James seems to be pointing us to this somber reality. Our words have the power to shape the world that we inhabit and therefore shape the human experience. Perhaps this is why in chapter 1, verse 19, we are encouraged to be quick to listen and slow to speak. I mean, that's pretty good wisdom considering the power that our words have. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. In an age of outrage, and don't get me wrong, there are times when there is plenty to be outraged about. But in an age of outrage, this invitation from James feels particularly timely. Knowing that our words help shape the world we inhabit, I do in fact pray that Christians, the body of Christ, Emmaus Road, would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and making sure that our words help create a world in which God is honored and our neighbor is respected as an image bearer of God. Well, so much ran through my mind as this week as I prepared this message. I even found myself saying, yes, but what about? Or how about when this happens? In other words, I found myself arguing with James, telling him there are times when we must be quick to speak. And there are times when listening does little good. And so I was trying to discern, how do you balance all of this? And where does the wisdom of James fit in? Well, for clarity, we need to look at the witness of Jesus. And what we find is that Jesus sometimes does have very harsh words. But mostly for religious leaders. Jesus has harsh words, but mostly for those who thought they were doing all the right things, following all the right rules, being super duper religious. I mean, to those who with humility saw their own sins and repented, Jesus shows endless compassion and grace. And to those religious people who with pride insisted they had everything figured out, Jesus sometimes condemned and spoke harshly against them. Matthew uh, is in particular where we find some of these things. In particular, Matthew chapter 23, uh, what we find is these religious leaders made the yoke of Jesus heavy with rules. They focused only on personal piety while ignoring what Jesus calls the more important matters of the law like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
the religious leaders were busy performing religious actions while even while their hearts were churned away from God to the point which Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Essentially saying, you look all clean on the outside, but you are dead on the inside. And so we consider Jesus' own witness along with the wisdom of James. And, and I think I came to understand that whenever we seek to call out evil, we must do so with humility and compassion. We must speak against evil with clarity and conviction, but not do so from the moral high ground as though we are some type of Uncle Andrew from the Chronicles. Well, we said in week one of the series that James is hard-hitting and very practical. And this is the nitty-gritty of our faith, isn't it? I mean, this gets right down to our day-to-day lives, right into our business. And so let me sum up James's thought as best as I can, as best I can. James wants our words because of the power that they hold to be consistent with our testimony. He wants our words to be consistent with our testimony because he recognizes how powerful our words are and the potential that our words have to create worlds and shape the human experience. Could we take a moment at the end of the message to just reflect on this, to to maybe slowly ask ourselves three key questions. I'll ask the question followed just by a brief moment of silence to allow for personal reflection. The first one is this, the big question. Are my words consistent with my testimony of Jesus as Lord. Secondly, is the tone of my posts on social media congruent with the tone and witness of Jesus. And finally, what kind of world are my words creating? This whole passage echoes the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verses 34 and 35, where he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of our hearts, the mouth speaks. For the people of God, 
seeking to bear witness to God's reign and rule in the world. Let's make sure that our words shared to one another and to our world are consistent with our testimony of a heart changed by Christ. And our prayer at the end is simple. Lord, would you help us?